the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the World of Islam podcast. My name is Amin Tais. Thank you for joining me again as we continue discussing the historical development of various aspects of the Islamic tradition. The topic of today's episode is what is called Sufism, or what has been termed Islamic mysticism. I need to stress here, again as I did in other instances, that the historian faces a major difficulty because of the absence of relevant documents from early Islamic history. We are therefore at the mercy of later accounts. Sufism is no exception. Sufis would come to claim a basis for their beliefs and practices in the world of the early community. The most we can say at this point is that we're working with the interpretations of later Muslims who were social actors and political actors in environments that are different from the world of the early community of Muhammad and his companions. Keeping that in mind, we can move forward in attempting to make sense of the development of Sufism. The first thing that we must highlight is that like for other aspects and intellectual fields of the Islamic tradition, the influence of a variety of factors shaped the development of Sufism. This includes the socio-political realities in the societies in which Islam took hold, as well as the interaction with other religious traditions. So, for instance, some of the centers that saw the emergence of early quote-unquote Sufi discourses were centers of Christian thought and Buddhist thought. Again, rather than suggesting a mechanical borrowing from other religious traditions, we must instead see a creative encounter between various ideas and the emergence of religious perspectives that battle for dominance in the midst of and under the influence of particular sociological realities and impactful political tensions. As far as what came to be later called Sufism, it is arguably grounded in the late 700s and in the 800s in a pious attitude that embraced asceticism, in Arabic zuhd. This is a lifestyle of detachment from worldly pleasures and of focus on repentance, in Arabic tawbah, and trust in God, in Arabic at-tawakkul ala Allah. These early ascetic circles may have been at least partially an outcome of the transformation of the Muslim community into an empire, leading to a pursuit of worldly pleasures and material gain, which, to these ascetics, run counter what they saw as the essentially otherworldly perspective of the Prophet's teachings. We could say that in some ways these early Zuhad or ascetics were social critics of a social project that was set in motion with religious ideas playing an important role, but that naturally became increasingly marred 
with all kinds of socio-economic issues. The ascetic attitude, however, was not a novelty in the Near Eastern environment. In fact, the Near East has long been home to individuals with strong ascetic tendencies who, by their detachment from worldly needs, gained a high status in their communities. These holy men were seen as exemplary individuals that had transcended the mundane life. They often played the role of mediators between people and of intercessors with God. They were, to use a Quranic term, awliya Allah, the friends of God. Those who are familiar with the history of Christianity are also familiar with Christian ascetics who captured the imagination of generations of Christian believers by their ability to leave behind the desires of the body. Christianity, of course, developed a complex monastic tradition. No such thing developed in Islam. But the ascetic attitude still played an important role in shaping spirituality within Muslim contexts. The term Sufism, in Arabic At-Tasawwuf, that would later be given to the mystical tradition, comes very likely from the Arabic word for wall, Suf, that Near Eastern ascetics were known to wear. In all cases, later Sufi writers would narrate captivating stories of miracles and great deeds and courage, etc., about the lives of Zuhad, who are represented as early proponents of Sufism. These stories are part of a large hagiographic literature, meaning a literature of biographies of saints. The stories cannot be all taken as historical, but they do signal a highly creative tendency and the keen ability of later Sufis to teach through storytelling and through parables. In the late 8th century, there is a seeming rise of a stronger focus on the concept of mahabba, love, as a central element in the relation between God and the world. A figure to mention in regards to this frame is Rabi'ah of Basra, who died in 801, also known as Rabi'ah al-Adawiyah. Having gone through difficult life experiences, she is said to have found the love of God which made her devote her existence to contemplation and worship. Among the famous sayings attributed to Rabi'ah is one in which, addressing God, she is said to have stated, O oh my Lord, if I worship you for fear of hellfire, then burn me in hellfire. And if I worship you in hope of paradise, then exclude me from paradise. But if I worship you for your own sake, then don't withhold from me your eternal beauty. This kind of attitude would put Sufism in tension with the legal experts and their focus on orthopraxy, on the duty of each Muslim to correctly perform detailed prescribed religious rituals and practices as enshrined in Islamic law, defined by the increasingly dominant juristic circles, particularly 
in Sunni contexts. We will see in the next few episodes how tensions will become more complex, with Sufis developing new elements, and we will also discuss various attempts at synthesis. Until then, I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.